you know, it's a blessing. I've been preaching out of the book of John, uh, actually, for the last few months now. I've really been enjoying it. I think um, I've always been a little bit squeamish about doing any kind of a, a like a, a systematic study or like a, you know, um, uh, expository s- series on a gospel because it really, sometimes it, it can get a little dry, it can get a little bit pre- uh, predictable. But as I've been really going into the book of John, God has had me really camp in this, in this book. Like, I, like all I've been reading is Psalms and John these days. Um, I'll read like ahead a few chapters, come back to the chapter that, that I'm in. And just, I've just really, God's really been speaking to me a lot through this book. Um, and, you know, he's, he has me here for now. So I'm just going to go through it. Uh, the best that I can in, in the weeks and the months to come. And if God you know, takes me to another a book, uh, I'll, I'll obey and we'll see where, that, where he takes us. But we're, gonna, we're right now on John 8. So I want you guys to open your books to John chapter 8. And last week, uh, out of John 7, we talked about Jesus confronting the religious leaders, right? There's this system of religious leaders that have really taken the law and, and corrupted it. And, and just really just made it into um, a, a very uh, a religious and, dr- and just you know, religious and, and uh, legalistic uh, infrastructure. Uh, and, and Jesus, seriously, he confronts them very harshly. He tells them that, hey, you guys don't even want to do the will of God. Right? Out of all of the people in Israel and in Jerusalem that should want to do the will of God, it should be you guys, but you guys don't want to do the will of God. Uh, he tells them that they don't know God, and ultimately they tell them that that they won't even see God, based on their twisted and off-the-mark understanding of themselves and religion, and 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 you know they've just been worshiping and glorifying themselves in a sense. Right? They're not worshiping God; um, they're just glorifying themselves. And then um, Jesus makes a declaration to all the lost and to all of the thirsty people. He says, "For all you thirst." All of you who thirst, right, come and drink from me, from him, for the for the water that he gives is not only uh, not you will never thirst again, but out of your hearts it says that rivers of living water will flow from you. And so, um, you know, Jesus he calls out, he confronts the the bad, he com- confronts the people that are just completely off, and then he calls to all of the ones that are thirsty, that are hungry for God. Um, and he says, "Come and drink from me. You know, you, I'm a, I can give you um, living water." Um, and this not only angers the religious elites and the leaders. But at the end of uh, chapter seven, we read about this conspiracy to arrest Jesus, and ultimately, you know, they want to put him to death because you know what he's preaching goes against everything that they've built for themselves. Now, in John eight. Um, it ends with this verse. It says, they each, they went each to his own house. Thank you so much. It says, they each went to his own house. And if you'll notice, um, all of your Bibles, that this verse, along with the rest of chapter um, 8, verses 1 through 11, have a double parentheses around them. Right? And there's usually going to be a footnote at the bottom somewhere. And it's going to say that this story is not found in the oldest manuscripts. Now, you guys know that 
the Bible, it was written by, you know, the apostles, but it was passed down through generations upon generations through people that would um, make copies of the writing. So John wrote the book of, of John, but the copy that he wrote doesn't exist today. What exists are manuscripts. Um, you know, they would take the book that he wrote, and then they say, man, we have to preserve this. We have to make sure that other people, you know, are able to, to you know, read this and understand and teach it. And so they would, you know, painstakingly copy every word um, as close as that they can, and they would get passed generation upon generation. Those were the manuscripts. And, and today there's um, actually 2,000 of these manuscript, manuscripts that you can go and find all around the world. That's a lot. There are certain books of the Bible, I mean, there are certain books in secular history, like Julius Caesar's, like, history, historic account. There's only, like, three or four manuscripts of these books. But the Bible, there's over 2,000 original, like, manuscripts that are on the old paper and the papyrus and all that that still exist today. And that's where we get the, the books of the New Testament um, that's been passed down. We get it from these manuscripts, and the and the Bible scholars noted that the el, the oldest of these manuscripts did not have this story in the Book of John, right between chapter seven and eight, uh, and this story doesn't really show up until the fourth century, around around 400 uh, A.D. This this story started to show up in the manuscripts um, that from there on, um, it, it's in the King James Bible. There's no there's not even an annotation in the King James. It's just, it just just goes in there as part of um, the book of John, um, and they noticed that starting about 400 A.D. in the 4th century, people started to, uh, the, the writers started to add this to the manuscripts, uh, but it was, it was not very uniform. Like sometimes it would show up in this place, in some manuscripts it would show up in other places in the book of John, um, and in some manuscripts, like a few of them, would, it would actually show up in the book of Luke near the end of book of Luke, right? And so um, there's a big controversy about this story, which is really kind of sad for me because this is one of my favorite stories about Jesus. Right? It really is. As I, you know, this is a story that I was taught as a young child and, um, and it, it, it stuck with me and it, it's a story, I believe it's beautiful. I believe there's so many uh, just amazing things to this story. And so there, there is a lot of speculation speculation about this story. Some believe that this story was a, a well-known story within Christian circles, a story that was orally passed down throughout the generation, um, you know, and, and then there was this one scribe who got just really just overzealous, uh, decided to, you know, add it to the book of John, right? And so um, most of these purists believe that it shouldn't be included in the canonized version of the New Testament, although they believe that it very well might have happened. Right? People know the story because it happened, but it just wasn't in the book of John, and then, and then some really overzealous um, scribe just got really excited and just decided to put it in one day, and it just got passed down. So that's one understanding. And there's another um, speculation about why this story is not in the oldest manuscript, is that, the, the, that it was actually originally in the, book, the Gospel of John, but um, the early church fathers decided to omit it or remove it from the book of John because it gives this really, it gives Jesus a really soft stance on sin, especially adultery. You guys know adultery is a big issue now, but it was also a big issue back then. They were surrounded by secular cultures, you know, and all, you know, everybody was committing adultery and, it, and this sexual immorality was starting to seep into the church. And so, the, so they, they believe that um, although this, this story was in the book of John, 
um, you know, the early church fathers decided to remove it and, and, and take it out because they didn't want to give people a justifiable means to commit adultery. Because right? in, in the story, basically, Jesus forgives this woman um, who's caught in the act of adultery, and they just thought, like, hey, people are going to just take this and just, you know, use it as a license to go, you know, buck wild. And so they, they, they believe that uh, it was removed, and then in the 4th century, it was actually grafted back into the book of John. So now skeptics believe when they read the, this, this story in the book of John, in, in, in chapter 8, the vocabulary that it's used and the, and the style of writing that is used in these 11 verses is very different from what John wrote throughout the rest of his book and all throughout his, his you know, the, the first, and, you know, first and second and third John and Revelations. The, the style is very different. The, the ch- choice of words is very different. And they believe that it's not um, uh, Johannian, can never pronounce it right, or relating to the Apostle John. Uh, but, you know, if you think of it as being intentionally omitted, like John wrote it, they took it out, and then 400 years later, they decided to put it back in, you would realize why the wording would be different, and the style would be different, because it was most likely a paraphrase of what John had originally written. Um, and, and, you know, when you read the book of John, there's these patterns that you, you find. There's like an incident happens, and then a sermon, incident, a sermon. He peels somebody, there's a sermon. He feeds 5,000, there's a sermon. There's a feast of booths, there's a sermon. And then if you take this story of this woman out, um, you have a sermon without an incident. And so that's, you know, some people believe, hey, this, this actually might be John, and that it might actually have been taken out. And they put it back in. Just, it was a little bit clunky when they put it back in. Now, I know there's a lot of technical things involved with this controversy, and I'm not here to get into that. I know that I did get into it a little bit. But um, I just want to know how we as Christian should view this passage of Scripture because there's some pastors that will not preach from this story. There's some really purist pastors. Uh, uh, Josh, can you turn off the AC? I think it's a little cold for some people. Um, there's some really Christian purists that believe that you know this story was not originally written by John and they actually will not preach from it. Um, they'll, when they do like a sermon series, they'll go from the end of John 7, and then they'll go straight to John 8, uh, verse 12, um, which is actually a natural progression of the book if you read it. And so this is still an ongoing debate, and I'm not here to tell you anything absolute about this passage. However, I am going to preach from this passage, right? And I wanted to kind of give you guys this, you know, this footnote in a sense. And the reason why I'm going to preach is it's a great story. It's such a beautiful story, and theologically and doctrinally, it fits into Jesus' teachings, it fits into his ministry, um, and I lean more towards the thought that it was actually kind of taken out. I can see the church fathers doing that, right? Taking this story where he just like, you know, it's just, it's just like scandalous woman, and, and Jesus scandalously just forgives her sin and says, you know, go sin no longer. It just... It, like, I can see them going, like, oh, we can't let this, we can't allow this to, like, you know, you know become a, a regular thing in the church. So I, I can actually see the church fathers going in and kind of taking this out, uh, maybe not teaching on it, and then it, all, it just slowly got removed, and then it was added later on. Um, but, you know, I also am going to preach on it because it's in my Bible. 
It's in my Bible, and I believe that if God really did not want us to read it or preach from it, it would have been removed centuries ago. Now, I believe that God is not up in heaven thinking, like, how dare he preach from that passage, right? Like, I believe if God, like, God's not up in heaven thinking, like, you know, if I only could remove this story from the Bible, right? Like, like, like if, you, if it would have been removed, I believe that it would have been removed centuries ago. And so I believe it's okay to preach on this passage. And actually, it's a, it's a, it's a story and it's an account of Jesus that is so very important for the body of Christ. And so we're going to read it today. Uh, let's read. Let's go to uh, John chapter 8. And I'll, I'll just read the end of John chapter 1, uh, John chapter 7, because it kind of connects together. It says, they went each to his own home. That's the end of John chapter 8, or 7. But it says in verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why? Why did he go? Jesus didn't have an earthly home. Everybody went to their home. There was this big party. Feast of Booths, right? Seven, eight days long celebration. You know, everybody's camping outside. And all of a sudden, it's over, and everybody goes to their home. Jesus doesn't have an earthly home. So most likely, he went up to the Mount of Olives to maybe pray, maybe camp. Um, There's, you know, there's some people say he might have gone to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, which is actually on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Maybe he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is right at the bottom of Mount of Olives. But, you know, he, 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 he's, he, he's, he's up there, and then the next morning, he goes right back to the temple, um, and he starts to, to preach, and he starts to teach. It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. As if, like, they busted in on her. Poof. Like, and then they were, like, you know, they were doing their thing. And then they just grabbed her and then said, come with us. You know, like, we're going to use you as a lesson. And, 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 they, and she might have actually been, like, naked and just had, like, a, maybe a, a, a towel or something around her. And, and they drag her off. And, and, and she's caught in the very act of adultery. And it says in verse 5, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And it says, this they said to test him, that they might, have, they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older once and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Um, now the Pharisees were out to get Jesus. The religious leaders, they, were, they, just, they, they wanted to get him. Um, he had said something about them and about himself, and it didn't sit right with them. Uh, and the system that they had built for themselves, uh, and they wanted to get him. They wanted to trick him. They wanted to catch him in this saying something that's going to get him arrested. And so they bring this woman that is caught in the act of adultery, and they set her before Jesus and say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? 
what should we do with this woman? And right off the bat, we know that these Pharisees were up to no good. Because if you read the law, Leviticus 2.10, it says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. Um, Deuteronomy 22.22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So this woman wasn't caught in an adultery by herself. Right? Adultery is not a solo activity. Right? Where, where was this man? Where was the dude? Right? Their motive wasn't to dispense justice or even adhere to the law and purge the evil from Israel. All they wanted to do was get Jesus. And they're just using this woman to make a point. And we know this from verse 6. It says that this they said to test him that they might have some charges against him. Uh, because as the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus, in their mind, he only has two options. Right? They believe, okay, Jesus, we're going to take this woman and we're going to test this man. And he's going to only have two options. Either pardon the woman and go against the very law of God, the law of Moses. Or condemn the woman to be stoned and lose credibility with his follower as a man of mercy and grace. Friend to sinner. And also, in doing so, they would have charges that they can bring against Jesus because with the Romans, um, you like Jews weren't allowed to put people to death. Right? Like in, in John 18, 31, it says, Pilate tells the Jews, like, hey, he says, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Uh, so, you know, Jesus, if he says stone her and then they stone her, they, have, they can just take him to the, the Romans and say, hey, this dude executed this woman. You guys should deal with him, and now he's going to be arrested. They can get him out of his hair. It's like catch-22 for Jesus. You got to know what catch-22 is, right? Like you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Like you, you do it, you know, they get you. You don't do it, they get you, right? And so we see this in the religious leaders. It's this picture of what man in his sinful nature will do with the law of God when left unchecked with their own devices, right? Like there's no righteousness in them at all. It's not at all. All they want to do is just maintain the system that they have created for themselves. And Jesus is, you know, what, what he's preaching and what he's doing is throwing a big monkey wrench into their system. So they, they just want to get him. And they're going to do, use any means possible to take down Jesus. In essence, this is what religious religion causes people to do. Religion will cause you to judge and condemn others so that you can feel justified. You know, like, I'm so glad I'm not like her. Has anybody thought that before? Oh, I'm so glad I'm not like him. I'm so glad. I, I hope my, my kids don't grow up like that. You know? It's just, you, you have to understand, religion, the law makes you think that in you being good and righteous, somehow you've added to your salvation. Right? Religion makes you feel like you've added, you've done something to add to your redemption. And you, when you think in this way, you see people that are sinful, and you see people living in sin, and it actually makes you feel better about yourself. You start to think like, you know, you start to think that God grades life on a curve. Right? You, you think like, hey, I know I didn't get all of the answers right, but I definitely know I got more answers than that dude, right? right? Like, I'm, on, I'm at the top of the curve, right? Like, I know... I know, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, 
I didn't get an A or whatever, but you know, I definitely did better than AJ, right? You know, it's, it's like that. You think that God grades on a curve. But God doesn't grade on a curve. God is all about pass or fail. It's like a pass or fail class. And according to his grading scale, we have all failed. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Pharisees think they're on the honor roll. They're on the dean's list. They're, they're like going to graduate magna cum laude. I don't know what that means, but it's supposed to be special. And God says, you all failed. You guys are all a bunch of flunkies, right? It's because God didn't give the Israelites the law to save themselves. There's, there's no way. And the law was given to show them first the heart of God and to show them that they needed a Savior. For them to understand that they could not save themselves, that they had failed the law, and that God needed to intervene, and that they needed a Savior. But these Pharisees and the religious leaders, they took the law and they created this empire for themselves where they are on top and they're able to look down on everyone else, and what Jesus was saying and preaching was going to just wreck all this. So they're like, dude, we have to get this guy. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care. We, we, need, to, we need to take this guy down because this guy is saying some stuff and preaching some stuff is making us look so bad, and we're going to take this Jesus down. But what does Jesus do? Now here, we have an, it's really an incredible lesson from Jesus in how he views sinners and how he views sin. And ultimately, it's a lesson for us to know how we should view sinners and how we should view sin. And he does it so gracefully and it with so much elegance and it's so poignant, right, in such a poignant way. That's why I believe that this actually happened. The story, like, it, the, when you read it, it's so, like, it, it, like it's so it's 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 so Christ-like to me that you know it may have been reverted. I have not figured out you know why it's not in the earlier manuscripts, but I, I believe that these are the very words of Jesus and the very actions of Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He squats down. Right? When I imagine Jesus squatting down, it's the kimchi squat. Oh, sorry, I I can't do it. My pants are too tight. But he does that kimchi squat. And, and, and he takes his finger and he starts writing on the ground. Now, you have to understand, the Jews back then, this was not weird for them. Because when the Jews, when the rabbis would preach in the, and teach in the temple, they would gather in all these different porticos. There was like Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. There's like, the, you know, there's like this area, you know, in, on the other side of the gate. All these places. And these, there was like many rabbis. And they would teach. And people would gather and listen. And they would write on the ground. And they would write, you know, sentences and things on the ground to kind of help explain what they were teaching. So the Jews, when Jesus is doing this, right, it doesn't really, it's not weird for them. It seems weird for us. But there's a lot of speculation about what Jesus wrote on the ground. Right? And nobody knows for sure. Right? Nobody knows what Jesus wrote on the ground. Some people think that he wrote the names of the accuser, of the woman, right, and then the sin that they were involved in. So it would be like, Doug. You know, like, does bad things, you know, like, like, you know, like, I don't want to name anybody in here, because I've done that before, and people didn't like it, uh, Frank, like, lies to his wife, you know, like, you know, whatever, right, and so they think that Jesus might have done that, that he actually wrote the names, you know, he has a gift of knowledge, so he knows their names, you know, he wrote, he, he wrote the names of the accusers of this woman, 
and then wrote the sins that they were, you know, struggling with as well. And, and they believe that's what he did. There's another person, I read this commentary, and they say that the only time anything is written on the ground in the Bible is in Jeremiah 17, 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in, in the earth, written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Right? And we know just like the other day at the feast, a booth, Jesus, he gets up, he makes his declaration that he is, you know, that out of, out of your bellies will flow, you know, rivers of living water, that he is the source of living water. And so they think that maybe Jesus wrote down this passage out of Jeremiah, like maybe something to allude to Jeremiah, you know, 17 or whatever he was uh, talking about. But we don't know. We don't know what he wrote, you know, we don't, and, and it really, you know, like there's no way for us to actually figure it out what it was, but but although we don't know, um, it, it 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 got to these religious leaders. It got to the Pharisees, right? It hit them really hard. Whatever it was, it got to them because Jesus gets up and he says, "Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at him." And he goes back down and starts writing on the ground. And it says in verse nine, "But when they heard it, right, they went away one by one, beginning from the older ones, and and, and Jesus." was left alone with a woman standing before him. In the King James and in the New King James, it says that they were convicted in their hearts. That they, there was a conviction in their hearts, and then they went away one by one, Older, um, the older ones leaving first. Now they were like, we got him. He's either going to break the law of Moses, or he's going to break the Roman law, and we're going to arrest him. But what Jesus does... Right. What Jesus does, he's, he, he, he does what he says he came to do. He says, I did not come to destroy the law or abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And in essence, he fulfills the law here. He says his words bring conviction to their hearts that according to the law, every one of them should deserve to be stoned. Right. Every single one of them. Whatever he wrote on the ground, or, or as he spoke it out, you know, every one of them realized that every one of e each and every one of them deserved to be stoned. I believe the older ones left first because they were either wiser because they're older or with their age brought with them more sinfulness. But either way, they all went away. And as the Pharisees leave one by one, the only one that is left is the woman. And Jesus, he stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. This is in essence the fulfillment of the law. Under the law, she's supposed to die. Right? Under the law, she's supposed to die. The law is fulfilled when she dies. And yet Jesus doesn't condemn her. He forgives her and says, go and sin no more. How is this possible? How is this possible? Because he's Jesus. And the death that this woman was supposed to face, he will ultimately face as he goes to the cross and is sacrificed for the sins of the world. He is the fulfillment of the law. And as these Pharisees like try to trip him up, you know, they have all of these just evil, deceptive motives. They're like, dude, we're gonna get this Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus tells them, like, hey. Here's some conviction for you. 
whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. And they look within themselves and they're like, I, I got some things to do. <laughs> I'm going to go and I, I got I to go in. You know, I got a trip I, I got to make to make this, you know, somewhere. And they all go away one by one because, in essence, he fulfills the law. He came to do what he has come to do, just die on the cross for the sins of the world. Now, what can we take away from this story? What truth do we have to hold on to from this story? And here's, here's, here's two that I want to point out. One is that Jesus is not condemning, which means that God is not condemning. So many times we have this understanding of God wanting to punish us, wanting to catch us in the act. Like this woman, she was caught in the act of adultery, right? She was just like doing, you know, I'm not going to make any kind of thing, but she's doing what, what she's doing, you know, she's not supposed to do. Kick down the door that she's caught in the very act of adultery. I done got you, right? We, we think that God, that's what God wants to do. Like he's hiding behind a tree with a radar trying to catch us speeding. And AJ goes like 75 miles an hour. I got you, AJ! Right? I'm like, I'm like we think that God is, is, is in this way. Like, like he's out to get us. That he, he, has, we, he has this desire to punish us. But do you know that God knows everything? He knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that you're doing now and everything that you will do in the future. And yet he still chose to send his son to die on the cross for you and me. That doesn't seem like a God that wants us, wants to catch us in the act. He doesn't have to. He knows everything. Every time we mess up, every time we do something that we're not supposed to, we, he already knows. And yet he still sent his son to die on the cross for our sin. That's scandalous grace. Our God is not a condemning God. He's a saving God. He's mighty to save. Meaning God's desire isn't to punish us. He loves us. If he was a condemning God, he would never have sent his son. He would have just left us alone. You guys, just do what you want. I'm just going to look back. And see you all go to hell, right? God could have done that, and yet what? He entered, he breaks into history, sends his son to save a people for himself. Jesus, he's not condemning. He's compassionate. He's empathetic. He understands our struggles. Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, he's compassionate, he's empathetic, he understands our struggles, he understands what we are going through. God looks through our hearts, sees every disgusting thing that is in our hearts and still says, dude, I love you, I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for you. That is not a God that is out to get us. He is a compassionate God. He's, he's not a condemning God. That's one thing that we really have to take away from the story. It's like, like, like where, where are your accusers? Are they, are, do they, who is there to condemn you? And like, no one. Like, neither do I condemn you. Go and 
sin no more. So God's not a condemning God. And number two, our God is not a compromising God. We have, this goes hand in hand. A lot of people will take this God doesn't condemn us, and then they'll just like go and go to the club, you know, smoke some weed, and you know, hook up with some, you know, do whatever, and then at the end be like, God doesn't condemn me. No. What what does Jesus say? He says, says, to the woman, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Ultimately, God is not compromising because Jesus became the sacrificial lamb that paid the punishment for our sins. That's the only way, that's the only way that God cannot be compromising. He can't leave it to us. We'll fail every time. You can't be like, dude, AJ, I don't want to compromise. So, you know, live your life well, man. So that, so that people don't look at me as a compromising God. We'll fail every time, right? Every time. Only way that he can save us and still not be a compromising God is by sending his son, Jesus Christ. But God's compassion and love doesn't just come with forgiveness in mind. He doesn't just want to forgive us. But God, he, being holy and righteous, His compassion comes with sanctification. God is not about saving us so that we can just leave, He can just leave us the way that we are. He saves us so that we can be like Him, that we can change, that we can be transformed. He's committed to changing and transforming us, renewing us. And it's not about us working at it, working for it, but it's it's about allowing Christ's life to be our life. He was he paid the price for our life. Christ in me is to live, right? And as his life is now what drives our life, we see sin the way that God sees sin. It's transformation from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin stops being something that we have to avoid, but sin starts to become something that we hate. Our understanding of sin is supposed to change through t- sanctification. You know that, that, that one of the key signs of maturity, spiritual maturity and sanctification in your life is how you understand sin. As a child, right, sin, right, right, the whole concept of sin is not getting caught, Right? That's how, like, baby Christians think about sin. Like, oh, so as long as I don't get caught, I'm all good, right? That's such an immature understanding of sin. But we all start there. When we were really immature Christians, we used to be like, oh, man, I don't want people to know. I don't want people to, you know, so I'm going to try to hide it. And, and as long as I don't get caught, it's all good, right? You know, and I believe those people are saved. It's just that they're just in a very immature place. But as God starts to sanctify us, His Holy Spirit starts to really come alive in us, and He starts to really start to change us from the inside out, all of a sudden, how we sin starts to change. Or how we understand sin starts to change. We don't see sin so much as like, oh man, me not getting caught. We say, man, sin hurts God. God hates sin. I can't be near God if if I'm, if I'm loving sin. And so all of a sudden, how we see God and how we see sin starts to be radically changed through transformation. And that's what God wants in us. He's not about 
us just forgiving our sins. Go instantly. Like, you know, I don't condemn you. Peace out. He's like, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. And you know what? I'm going to change your life and change your understanding of the world so that the way that you see sin, you won't, you actually won't sin no more. Now, I'm going to end with this, and it's this lesson, it's that this lesson has to really permeate in the way that we as believers see sinners and sin. Because, you know, sometimes we're really great at giving ourselves grace. I'm really great at giving myself grace. Who's really great at giving yourself grace? Some of you guys aren't, but most of us, we're really great at giving ourselves grace, right? Caleb, man, you're too hard on yourself, man, right? We love giving ourselves grace, but when it comes to others, we're not so good. And we learn how God views the world and the lost as his life becomes our life. We have to view sinners, people around us, the lost, from his perspective. And it's that God hates sin. He condemns sin, but he doesn't condemn sinners. He doesn't hate sinners. He doesn't like it when sinners go to hell. Actually, God loves sinners. It doesn't mean that some people are not going to be condemned. God is a holy God. Not everybody gets a ticket. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a whole lot of people out there that hate Jesus to the day they die. Okay, but there's, we can try our best. We can do everything that we can. Try to change their minds, but they just, they just don't change their minds, right? But as a follower of Christ, we have to see the lost, the sinners of this world, the way Jesus sees them with compassion, with love, quick to offer mercy, quick to forgive, slow to judge, slow to anger, not condemning, but also not compromising, speaking the truth in love, standing on God's word. Now, this is hard, right? What I just told you is very hard. If this is easy for you, you might just have the gift of evangelism, and you might be an evangelist. But to many people, this is hard. Being loving to everyone is not hard. Oh, God loves you. I love you. That's not hard, right? Also, being blindly, you know, reminding people that they're going to hell without making any kind of real connection with them, that's not hard either. I can go to the street and say, hey, you're going to hell. Hey, you're going to hell. That's not hard. I could do that. But what's hard is truly having compassion for the lost, loving them, caring for them, not condemning them, but still standing on God's word and speaking the truth in love and bringing conviction. That's hard. Do you know that? That's, That's one of the hardest things that we will do as believers. I believe that's why God, the word of God and the spirit of God is so important in our life. Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are 
naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's powerful. That's the word of God. You guys understand that? That's the word of God. The word of God has the power to do that in people's lives. If you want to pierce the heart and soul of somebody that is lost, you have to have the word of God. It's got to be ingrained in you. You know, the Bible is like karate. You know that? The Bible is like karate. You take karate and you like, you do a lot of learning. Ethan's taking taekwondo. He goes and he kicks a lot, punches a lot, learns to fall, right? I did that too. I, I, you know, I, 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 like when I was young, I I took uh, this one, it was a martial arts class. I, I forgot what it was. Maybe it was Korean, maybe it was Japanese. But, you know, I did it for almost a year, and I got to the yellow belt, and then my, my dad realized he had to pay for the belt, which was like 120 bucks, and he said, nah, you're just going to quit, right? So I, I, I did one year of that, and I did a lot of practicing. I did a lot of punching and kicking, right? But it didn't seem real to me until one time I got in a fight with somebody, one of my friends in front of his yard, right? We got into a fight. We were like, hey, man, you're stupid. You're not used to it. And I remember at this moment, like something kicked in, and then he grabbed for me, and I did this thing with my butt where I went, whoosh, and I like, I threw this dude on the ground, and he looked at me so shocked. He was like, I remember, I, like, I, like it, was, it just came so naturally, but it's what we had learned, in, like, in, in, in karate, or I forgot what it was called. It wasn't, it wasn't like taekwondo, but it was something. I'm going to ask my dad, right? But, but I remember it just came out naturally, right? So the Bible is like that. You read, you study, you get it in you, and it just seems like, ah, man, this just seems like busy work. I don't, I don't see it really changing my life. And then when something happens, and there's like a confrontation, or like God, God really wants to speak to you, the Word of God just comes out of you. And that, that's powerful. When, when, when the Word of God comes from you, and it, it's not because you thought, it's because the Spirit of God just brought it forth from your from your soul, from your spirit man that's inside of you. That's powerful. And then the Word of God says that the Word of God it has the ability to pierce between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. So like if there's any division that needs to happen within somebody's heart, the Word of God is there in, in, with precision like a surgeon is able to go and touch a piece of that heart that needs to be touched. That's the Word of God. Are you depending on the Word of God? Are you in the Word of God? Is it, are, is it is the Word of God in you, not just as knowledge, but as fuel in which the way you live? Is the Word of God empowering your life, your decisions? Is it trained into your memory, and are you actively pursuing it? Is it something that you're actively pursuing so that you get it in you? You know, when you were young, people had to tell you, man, I had to tell, we had to tell our kids, go read, do your homework. Right? Do your homework. Go and, go and, and, and write this. You know, I, during the, um, the corona thing, when they, had, when they had to homeschool, and we had to, every morning I wake up, and, I, and then Ethan would watch his little video, and then he, I see him just daydreaming, uh, and then afterwards he has to do his homework, like in his, in his homework book, and I said, did you do your homework? And he's like, ah, oh, I'll do it later. I was like, don't do it now, right? You gotta do it. You gotta do it before you watch TV, right? And we have to tell him, like, do your homework, right? But as he grows up, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be telling him all the time. When he's like 25, 35, I'm not gonna be there to like, you know, you know, do your taxes, right? You know, like whatever it is. 
In the same way, when we're young, people, we have to tell you to read the Word of God. When you get to a place of maturity, you realize, I need the Word of God. That's maturity right there. Do you guys understand that? Instead of somebody telling you, man, you should, you should get into the Word of God, you, you come to this realization. It's like, you know what? If, if I'm going to grow in the Lord, I need the Word of God. That's maturity. That's being redeemed in the mind and in the heart, right? And do you have, are you pursuing, are you actively pursuing the Word of God? Because if you want to be like, you know, like I said earlier, loving, not condemning, being gracious, being merciful, at the same time speaking the truth and not compromising and, and, and being able to really just stand on the Word of God and bring conviction into people's lives, you're going to need the Word of God in you. You can't expect to do that. If it's not in you. And the next is the Spirit of God. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are, are to come. Are you depending on the Spirit of God? Do you depend on the Spirit of God when you talk to your, your co-workers? Now, Mina, had, Mina had this, you know, she, she's feeling some anxiety at her work this week. And she kind of had to like make this do this confrontation with one of his co- her coworkers, and she she kept on calling, "Can you pray for me? <laughs> Can you pray for me?" And uh, I'll pray for her, you know. But one of the things I, I know is that Holy Spirit is in her, and I know that she's gonna depend on the Holy Spirit as she talks and as she communicates. Is the Holy Spirit at work in your life, in your everyday lives, when you're talking with people, when you're interacting with people? When you're out in the world, when you're, when you're talking to your friends, when you're talking to your coworkers, because He is there. Holy Spirit is there. When you're talking to your boss, when you're talking to your co-teacher, when you're talking to your even your students, Holy Spirit is there. He's with you in all of your adventures and your conversations, and He wants to lead you and guide you in all truth, in all the things that God wants for your life. Are you being led by the Holy Spirit? Because when you are led by the Holy Spirit in your interactions with the lost, you know, He will lead you and guide you. That person might just need a hug. That person might actually need to be confronted with hell. That person might actually need to really just to realize that God loves them and God cares for them and that God is with them. And Holy Spirit leads us into this truth. Basically, we have to be the reflection of Christ for the people that don't know him. John 15, 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who, is, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. He's saying, he will, Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus. Whatever Holy Spirit is doing in you is testifying about Jesus. So if you want to be out in the world talking to non-Christians and non-believers and people like that, and you want to be a reflection of Jesus, Holy Spirit has to be at work in your life. He testifies about Jesus. And the more of the Word of God and the Spirit of God is at work in us, the more they will see Christ in us. Jesus doesn't expect us to save people on our own. On, you know, on our intelligence and our knowledge and our understanding, and we'll all fail. 
What he wants us to do is show people Christ Jesus, hope of glory in us. The only way that we're going to be able to show that to people is if the word of God is in us and the spirit of God is at work in us. The Jesus that the woman caught in adultery encountered, is that the Jesus that people are seeing through you? Or are they seeing the Pharisees' understanding of a Savior? Or is the world understanding of Jesus with no truth or conviction? Because we see here such an amazing picture of Jesus, his love and his compassion, his grace and his mercy. He's not condemning, but he's also not compromising. And he's stern on sin. He hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we just